What we're seeing in the law is that you're seeing a shift in the balance of power from the producer to the actual client. Previously, the law firms dictated the terms of trade. Now, clients dictate the terms of trade. Hello, my name is Gay Alcorn and welcome to a University of Melbourne podcast on the brave new world of work, a series about the future and the skills and the outlook needed to make the most of it. Today we look at lawyers who balance history with innovation. Just what does innovation mean for an industry that has been in existence for centuries? To discuss this, I'm joined by John Denton, partner and CEO of leading law firm Cause Chambers Westgarth, founded way back in 1841. Hello, John. Good morning. And on the line from San Francisco is Jodie Baker, who founded her virtual firm Hive Legal way back in 2014 and now heads Zakia Technologies. Hello, Jodie. Good evening. Now, to you first, John, we know that industries are being revolutionised by technology and we know the pace of change now is relentless. So how is this impacting on the law? I actually think that what the most evidently disrupting law is the changing demands of clients and of the people who work in the law. Um, Technology is actually an enabler of that change, but the actual change has been driven by uh, quite quite clearly the changing demands of um, our clients uh, and in particular their expectations and also the, the changing needs of the people who work in the law as well. Uh, and technology enables it, but technology is actually not the driver. It's actually changed expectations. My firm has been in a continuous existence for over 170 years. Why are we able to continue to exist and sustain ourselves and be successful is because we are capable of transforming ourselves to reflect the new reality, which is that clients are the actual holders of the balance of power. Jodie, what do you think? I agree entirely that uh, a lot of the change is being driven by the clients and that there has been quite an enormous structural shift towards the uh, the clients, particularly on the corporate side. Uh, and there is a, a reaction by the firms uh, to that. And, and as John rightly points out, some firms are reacting uh, more proactive than others in, in coming to the party. I do think, though, that technology is enabling some of that structural shift. So technology is significantly less expensive now than it was even five years ago. And cloud computing plays a big role in that. So allowing smaller teams or smaller corporate teams to access quite sophisticated technologies at quite a low price means that they can be empowered to operate like many law firms, which really changes the engagement of those corporate legal teams with their law firms in terms of the type of work that they ask their law firms to do. And I think that when it comes to um, the shift, structural shifts in industries are often led by those early adopters and, and there can be a lot of dissatisfaction and the early adopters are the first ones to really jump on new things. But for the, the late majority particularly, uh, sometimes they, they don't see the gap until it's put in front of them. And, you know, we've got the, the old Henry Ford and, and Steve Jobs who say you've got to actually show people what they need rather than asking them what they want. Uh, who, who go out and create these things and once it's there, then people will jump on board. I, I suspect that um, there are gaps in the market uh, that other people are filling or law firms or technologies or what have you, but I also think that there is a good part of the market that doesn't actually know what they want until it's put in front of them. We look at a lot of data which says that when you look at the relationship between law firms and their clients, clients continually say that the gap is that 
law firms don't understand what it is we are trying to do, our legal service providers. What that tells me is that the idea of client focus is important but not enough. Client service is important but not, not enough. Because if you look at the other data points, there's been an incredible increase in the amount of client focus and client service standards have actually risen. And yet you still talk to clients and they say, but the, client, but the law service providers don't understand what, we, what, what our needs are. What that tells me is there's a big difference between client focus, client service, and actually being driven by the client. And that's what actually the big challenge for law firms is to become client-driven. Frankly, it's a big challenge for professional service firms generally, and frankly, for technology providers as well, because there's a lot of um, technology which is provided which is unused. In fact, if you look at the cachet of a lot of technological uh, uh, frameworks that are put in place with clients, sometimes something like 80% of the actual value that's supposed to be created is never realised. And also to you, Jody. I mean, you've spoken a little bit about this. I mean, how will artificial intelligence impact the law and is it, is it already doing so? So, so I was um, lucky enough to uh, to host the Centre for Legal Innovation Roundtable on Monday in Melbourne uh, on this very question. And uh, there was, you know, the first part of the conversation was actually how you define AI, which is, it changes every year. But I did quite like the definition that one of the attendees gave, which is that at the moment... Um, AI can probably just be defined as something really clever. Uh, I think that my view on artificial intelligence and the law is that um, it's still got some way to go. I think that it is changing things up quite considerably and we are seeing some really interesting work uh, around e-discovery and around contract reviews and what have you. Uh, certainly the expert systems that we see at Neodologic, um, there are some really interesting projects being done. But I think that um, the notion that uh, lawyers are about to be replaced by artificial intelligence is still some way down the track. One thing that I find um, intriguing about the discussions on artificial intelligence and lawyers is a, a misplaced assumption by lawyers that lawyers are actually exempt from this uh, movement and the potentiality of it because what they bring to the matter is their judgment. Uh, and it's kind of curious to me that there's a lot of self-importance uh, that's sort of wrapped up in that statement because what people don't realise is that a lot of their judgement is is actually valuable only in the to the extent that there's uncertainty. But what if that uncertainty is able to be limited by the application of algorithms used on data, which actually enables prediction? Then there's a lot of areas where people think their judgement is critical which on the balance of probabilities is actually eradicated by the application of effective algorithms. So unless you're able to position yourself where I like to position my firm at the really complex problem-solving end, you will find yourself uh, asleep at the wheel as someone does actually erode what you think is your judgment sphere uh, by applying, I think, um, some pretty good data analytics. Speaking of the rise of technology and AI, Jody's current firm, Zakia, is an example of a non-traditional legal firm. Can you tell us a bit more about this? So Zakia is, um, uh, is a, really a result of a research project that I did when I was still at Hive, uh, talking to as many in-house and general counsel as we could to understand what was missing from their suite of technology products. Uh, and uh, off the back of that research project where the answers were, were fairly consistent, uh, we built a, a small prototype and then 
Um, clients liked it. It was good feedback, but it did not belong inside a law firm. And so we spun it out on the 1st of July last year, and it's a completely independent organisation, but it's it's technology for corporate legal teams. Corporate legal operations platform is the way that we describe it. Um, and really, it's about just providing a very simple management tool, uh, equivalent of a practice management system for law firms. Um, and uh, it's, it's had um, quite a lot of a, a take-up, and I'm in the US at the moment, speaking to you from San Francisco, where we're doing our official launch next week at the ACC conference in Washington, D.C., um, because there's not a... a similar product um, really globally, I don't think. And, and are there digital opportunities to change the law in other ways in terms of a- access to the law, you know, bringing down costs for some simple um, procedures that people want want to have and are now kind of not able to afford um, a traditional legal firm or traditional legal advice? I mean, what are the opportunities there in terms of access to the law? Well, I think the opportunities are enormous. I think that some of the statistics um, that are around, and I don't have them to hand at the moment, but the statistics that suggest that there are a, a very large number of people who are not being serviced at all at the moment who, um, with the digitisation of law, uh, will be able to access the equivalent of Dr Google, I guess, um, be able to go online um, and be able to, to search up the tools that will help them to identify what their problems are, where they might find the solution, um, even what some of their alternatives might be for self-implementation. I think that that opportunity is is very large and I don't think... Um, that we've even scratched the surface of it yet. I have to say that I applaud um, the University of Melbourne and their law app subject, which certainly looks at um, creating opportunities to create applications for not-for-profit organisations to improve the access um, access of the law to you know people who otherwise don't have uh, have the resources to do it. But I think that it's a huge opportunity. There's a lot more work being done outside Australia than in Australia on this area, though. But it's inter- it is interesting because um, you know. You know People talk about the legal industry, but in the end, we're a profession, and the profession, of course, is um, you know, uh, when you think about our priorities, the first one is to the administration of justice, and this whole issue about ensuring the continued support for the rule of law. A lot of that is actually about accessibility of justice, um, and so a lot of work is going on now, uh, more in the UK, I'd have to say, um, than in Australia, about how you can facilitate access to justice, justice through the digital platform, and I think it's a really useful piece of um, focus um, and I'd like to encourage, one thing I'd like to do is encourage more of that thinking in Australia. Um, I'd like us to be best practice in it. Uh, we've got a way to go. Uh, uh, but there's the opportunity that comes with the digital platform to do more about this. And Jody, you're speaking to us from San Francisco today. Um, tell us what's happening uh, overseas in, in, in other countries and do you agree with John that, that some of the trends are, are ahead of us here in Australia? There are probably two things that I see going on. Um, one is is that cultural shift, sorry, not cultural, structural shift uh, that we talked about earlier in terms of uh, the corporate legal teams really taking a lot more work in-house and being empowered with new and um, quite technologically advanced tools to do things themselves and changing the way that they interact with their external law firms. Uh, we've seen the rise of the clock organisation, so Corporate Legal Operations Consortium, um, which is very large here in the US and only a few years old, um, but really gathering steam and, and the whole notion of corporate legal operations as a separate function, even from the lawyers, um, is, is not something that we see a lot of in Australia, um, but it is also growing there. I mean, Nick Shee from Telstra has initiated the clock chapter in Australia and it's gathering steam. So I think that that trend uh, is likely to continue in Australia, but it's, it's not the same size market, so it's slightly different there but very significant here and um, and certainly growing in importance. 
that's probably the first one. And the second one <clears throat> for me is really uh, spending quite a lot of time in San Francisco and around the ecosystems of innovation and technology uh, throughout 2017 for me has really shown me um, that I think that uh, there's a long way to go in Australia around building those sorts of ecosystems and really supporting that legal tech industry. Um, I've been one of the uh, initiators of a group called the Australian Legal Technologists Association this year. Uh, we have 19 members who would have thought that there were 19 legal tech startups in Australia. Um, and that's been an eye-opener for me just in terms of building an ecosystem from the ground up. Uh, it's, been, it's been quite a, a challenge in some ways, but also very satisfying. But I, I do see that as far more pro progressed here in the US than it is in Australia. Can I ask you both about universities? What do you think their role is in this change that's going on? What sort of skills should graduates be coming out with now? Universities must understand what the new professions are going to look like. Seeing the shift in the market power, understanding new career paths available to the graduates, arming them with the skills that they're going to need and being very forward thinking about it. So not just reactive, uh, but actually in some ways shaping the future. Uh, so legal technology is obviously one of them, um, but also understanding that uh, you need to say, well, you know, if, if there is a shift towards corporate legal, then maybe we should be training up our graduates to go straight into corporate legal. Maybe that's, it's not the responsibility of CORS and other major firms to train up all these grads and then watch them go out to the clients. Um, but actually, you know, we need to we need to think about whether there's a role for the universities to arm them with different skills. And, and there are some, some differences in terms of the legal practice being done in a law firm compared to the legal practice being done inside a corporate legal team. So I think that um, you know that that visionary aspect of universities, understanding where those career paths might be and arming them for those sorts of things is really important. I think the second thing is then um, creating opportunities for those students to explore themselves. So hackathons are, are the easy um, thing to point to here in terms of legal technology and, and creating opportunities for them to learn and understand and explore and create ideas. But I think it's actually more basic than that. It's, it's comes down to brainstorming, creating opportunities to come up with new ideas, um, maybe even setting uh, some um, boundaries around what those paths, the career paths might look like for themselves uh, and then allowing them to explore it and articulate it. Um, but, you know, it just needs to be a curious world at the moment. It needs to be that the ideas are all explored and there's a great deal of flexibility around where the skills that they're taught in university can take them. I like to sort of... Um speak to all the summer clerks as they come through uh, and also get the opportunity to speak at a lot of um, campuses uh, and part of them trying to understand the kind of people who are there and what they're, what they're interested in as well because can we align our law firm to what they're interested in? Is it? But the more I, more I talk to them, the more I realise how um, challenged they are uh, because the institutions that they're working at aren't really thinking about the future. They're thinking about how to get them a job, but I, they don't really understand how to build a career in the law. Um, and I think some of the things Jody said are incredibly powerful. So what I'm looking for, frankly, is the potential, the capacity to be creative, to be externally focused, uh, and problem solving is important, but actually to have quite strong human skills. Um, the reason is that the kind, you know, you think about my comments before about the, the potential rise of uh, machine thinking, uh, cognitive applications. I mean, you know, uh, unless you're capable of operating at a particular level, you, you're, you, you're, you're capable, your capability will be, um, might be redundant over a period of time. 
Uh, and that's okay, but if you can reinvent yourself from then on, that's great as well. So that requires sort of quite human strengths, all sorts of things. So I look for a lot of things. Uh, absolutely, I look for strong and outstanding technical legal skills. But I think it's fair to say that's not enough. That is just not enough anymore. Uh, and yes, these are sort of things that I look for. Different organisations will look for different things. But I do think uh, creativity at the heart of it, problem solving, is going to be a huge potential opportunity for lawyers in the future, particularly given the, the changing frameworks in which the, we're operating on a, on a global basis as well. So there's going to be a whole lot of new thinking required to how we operate, a whole lot of uh, creative problem solving required, a whole lot of new... Uh, rules and regulations thought about which are much more flexible for this new context. I, mean, I suppose I'm being a little bit ambiguous about it all, but um, they will require quite creative lawyers. They will be people of real value in the future. You have been listening to a discussion between John Denton, Jody Baker and me, Gay Alcorn. In the changing world of work, the Melbourne model is preparing students for the future beyond their degree. To find out more, visit unimelb.com edu.au and look for Melbourne Talent.